Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I'm getting my queue of episodes built back up, which feels good. I don't think I'll be back to two episodes a week anytime soon, though. Gainful employment and all, you know, but I'm still glad to be about a month ahead, which means it is still January as I write this. So who knows what's happened in the world between the time I record and the time this episode drops. Today, we have another tragedy from Seneca. Thyestes. This one is unique because there is no specific source for it other than what we already know of the curse on the Atreides. This is one of Seneca's later works, likely written after 54 CE and therefore under the reign of everyone's favorite fiddling emperor, Nero. You may recall from all of the Greek sources we read about Agamemnon and Menelaus that they couldn't help what happened to them because their family is cursed. Well, this play covers part of the myth that explains why. It's about their father, Atreus, and his, shall we say, unhealthy relationship with his brother, Thyestes. So, of course, the play includes Thyestes and Atreus. It also includes the person who started all the trouble, their grandfather Tantalus, or at least his ghost, who is being taunted by one of the Furies when the play opens. I'm working from the Emily Wilson translation, and she does not choose to name which Fury it is, but another of my sources names her Megira. To make things confusing, one of Thyestes' sons, and the only one with a speaking role, is also named Tantalus. Tantalus Jr., if you will. Thyestes' other sons are non-speaking roles. The play is set at Mycenae, so the chorus is comprised of the people of Mycenae. And there is the usual assortment of messenger types with speaking roles. The ghost of Grandpa Tantalus will provide the rest of the background on the plot in his prologue, so I think this is enough to get us started after a short break. As noted before the break, the play opens with the ghost of Tantalus. He starts by describing his current state of torture in the underworld. You may already be familiar with it. He is ever hungry for the food that is just out of reach and ever thirsty for the water that flows away as soon as he bends down to drink. His punishment is truly the worst. Sisyphus with his boulder and Titius, whose liver gets eaten each day only to regrow each night, have it better, at least according to Tantalus, the ever tantalized. And now he's been pulled away from that torture, undoubtedly for some fresh new hell. The fury that he's speaking to rolls her eyes at his complaints. She has come to show him a new feast, one eerily similar to the feast that led to Tantalus's punishment in the first place. Tantalus, much like the ancient audience of this play, knows exactly what that means and announces that he'd rather go back to his punishment in the underworld. Better to embrace his torture than than see his punishment rain down on his grandchildren. (laughs) The Fury just laughs. The wheel is already turning and there's nothing Tantalus can do to stop it. So what exactly is it that Tantalus did? The chorus steps in to explain. You see, back in the day, Tantalus had a son named Pelops. One day, the gods came for a visit, and Tantalus decided to test them by serving them Pelops stew. Yes, 
he dismembered his son and cooked him. But the gods figured it out, and Zeus resurrected Pelops, who went on to have children, including Thyestes and Atreus. But that whole cooking Pelops thing is why Tantalus is now suffering eternal punishment. Since there are no stage directions, it's hard to say if Tantalus and the Fury remain on stage for the rest of the play, but their prologue is concluded, and the story of Thyestes now begins. Atreus enters. He is enraged to learn that Thyestes has returned to Argos. He should have killed Thyestes when he had the chance, especially after Thyestes slept with Atreus' wife. I mean, Atreus isn't even sure if Agamemnon and Menelaus are truly his sons. They could be Thyestes! But then he starts thinking about what Grandpa Tantalus did to good old Papa Pelops. And Atreus starts thinking that maybe he should take a page out of Grandpa's book. An unnamed servant tries to talk some sense into him, even going so far as to say that he'll have no hand in this plot. If Atreus wants to do what Atreus is thinking, then Atreus will have to find some other lackey to help him. Atreus decides that his own sons can be his messengers in that case. But he won't tell them what his plot is. Children can't be trusted to keep secrets, after all. And seriously, if they're anything like my kid, Atreus is probably right, and Agamemnon and Menelaus start talking as soon as they wake up and don't stop until they fall asleep. But I digress. Atreus's plan is set. Agamemnon and Menelaus will be the lures for their uncle, and it's not going to be pretty. The chorus sings about good kings versus bad kings, and this is Seneca, so you know that the good kings are Stoics. Thyestes enters. He is happy to be home after his exile, although he is a little confused about how his brother is going to respond. His three sons enter, and Tantalus Jr. speaks for all of them. Jr. asks why his dad is hesitating to return home. Thyestes explains that he just wants to be back in Mycenae, but he'll be happy to live a simple life. Jr. scoffs at this, insisting that Thyestes could be king if he so desired. He could be king, and his sons could inherit. Junior sounds a bit like Grandpa, if you ask me. Anyway, Junior convinces Thyestes that Atreus has no ill intents, and Thyestes agrees to stay. Atreus enters, and as far as we can tell, given the lack of stage directions, tells the audience about how he now has Thyestes exactly where he wants him. He just has to hold strong while his plot unfolds. And after that villainous soliloquy, Atreus turns to his brother with a smile and greets him warmly. Thyestes is shocked to be treated so well. After all, he did sleep with his brother's wife in an attempt to usurp the throne. But now he feels bad about all of that, and he pledges his loyalty to Atreus. For his part, Atreus appears to accept this apology and declares that sacrifices will be made to show that Thyestes has returned to his good graces, and they all exit. The chorus is shocked by this turn of events and sings a song about it. A messenger enters and tells the chorus all about what's happened in great detail. He describes how Atreus made sacrifices, but the victims were the sons of Thyestes. And when I say he describes it in great detail, we're talking Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus level of gore here. What you need to know is that Atreus kills Thyestes' sons and then makes a literal meal of them, which he feeds to their drunken father. The chorus sings about how shocking this action is, and how the sun has disappeared from the sky, even though it's the middle of the day, and that surely such behavior means the world is ending. Atreus enters. He is giddy. Everything has gone according to plan. His brother is feasting and still doesn't know what he's eating. And isn't that hilarious? 
Oh, this family. Thyestes enters, or maybe the palace walls part to reveal him inside. Again, we have no stage directions. And he is and he speaks of how happy he is to be back home with his family. Atreus suggests they raise a toast. Thyestes toasts their brotherhood, or at least he tries to. It's the strangest thing. He can't lift the cup, and everything becomes out of sorts. And this realization washes over him. Where are his sons? Atreus happily reveals their heads and gloats over the fact that Thyestes has feasted on the flesh of his own sons. Thyestes declares that he leaves it to the gods to punish Atreus for this act. Atreus remains unconcerned, and that is where the play ends. When I said that this play rivals Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, I wasn't kidding. It is gory. A lot of Seneca's tragedies can be described that way, but this one might be the worst. The whole of Act 4, as the messenger describes Atreus's actions, yeah, maybe don't read it on a full stomach, which is interesting because for a Stoic philosopher, Seneca is anything but Stoic when it comes to describing murder. It's almost as if being a Stoic all the time isn't really feasible, and even the best of Stoics needs a break from being so perfectly Stoic. I do want to make a note about the larger myth. Most of our prior encounters with the curse on the house of Atreus have focused on Agamemnon, and you may recall that he has a cousin named Aegisthus. So, for family tree purposes, yes, Aegisthus is Thyestes' son, but he hasn't been born yet when the plays, when the events of this play takes place, and so that's why he survives this part of the story. But back to Stoicism. We see it in a few places in this play. The chorus sings of Stoicism, of course, but then we have Thyestes. He is torn between Stoicism and passion, and while he starts out speaking as a good Stoic would, he is too weak to maintain that philosophy, and look at what happens to him. So what do you think? How do you think, say, Euripides or Sophocles, maybe? I was trying to decide between Aeschylus and Sophocles, which one, any of the three, any of our three famous Greek tragedians would have handled this. What, how do you think it would have been different? Um, this is, as far as the source, excuse me, as far as the sources we have available, a largely original work, not based on an earlier Greek tragedy like the rest of the tragedies we've read from Seneca. How does Seneca's stoicism affect the story? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as Triumvir Clio. That link is in the show notes, too. In the next episode, we'll cover book 10 of the Aeneid. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.